Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's the NIL hour. For those of you that have been patiently waiting, definitely worth the wait. Jam-packed episode tonight with me, as always, is Mike Lawson. How's it going, Mike? Karen, we're back. We've had a couple weeks off. It's been like peak of like vacation season. It's been my busy season for work too. So good to be back. Same here. And Holly, how's it going? Hey, Taryn, how are you? And we're really excited tonight to be joined by Matt Brown from Extra Points. And if you've listened to this podcast at all, you've heard us talk about Extra Points a bunch. Uh, it's right up the alley of what people who are interested in the subject matter of this show would be interested in. So thanks so much for joining us tonight, Matt. It's my pleasure. Thanks for being patient with me. And I'm excited to spend a little bit of time with you guys this evening. So let's start here. You have a video game. And I don't think a lot of people can say that, which is really, really cool. Can you tell us a little bit about Athletic Director 3000? I would love to talk about Athletic Director 3000 because it's 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 a project I'm really proud of and really excited about because it started as a joke. I'm not a software developer by trade. I, I kind of fell into journalism through the back door, but I, I've been a reporter for a decade. And I figured that maybe learning a little bit of Python might help with my data analysis ability because for the kind of FOIA work that I do or financial reporting that I do, they have all these big old spreadsheets. And I thought, you know, maybe this might help me you know, with, with storytelling. You know, I think with anybody that's learning or programming language, the first thing you do is try to make a game, right? Try to make some very, you know, like, oh, let me demonstrate that I understand how loops work and how a couple of variables work. So I made this very, very basic, dumb text adventure like six months ago. And it wasn't serious, right? Like the way that you won the original version of ADS 3000 was by buying a bunch of extra point subscriptions. You know, it was mostly <laughs> as, a, as a gag for like my Reddit people. But apparently not only did the non-industry fan respond positively to this, but many of the athletic directors and conference staffers that read extra points reached out and said, like, hey, this was pretty fun. What are you going to make? When are you going to add more to it? When are you going to flesh this out? So I kind of sat down with my my corporate overlords at D1 Ticker. We thought like, what if we took five grand, six grand and made this an actual game? So we reached out to a couple of, of contractors who know Java a little bit better than I, than I did. And we, we, we made, a, it's a legitimate, real computer game that is like the Oregon Trail, That's if you played any Apple IIe games or like the five and a half inch floppy kind of mech games, I think you'll recognize this. It's 8-bit audio, black and green graphics, but it's meant to ask the player to tackle very realistic scenarios that an actual athletic director at a low, mid or high major program might have to deal with. And then let the player try to navigate those while managing a budget managing their local, you know, their fan and political support and their director's cup ranking. And we, 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 it's it's not football manager. It's not a triple A title in terms of complexity, but I'm a sports writer. <laughs> we had one and a half, you know, uh, develop, developers kind of building it. We're hoping to flesh this out as a tool to not just help undergraduate sports management majors have a better appreciation for the complexity of collegiate administration, but yeah. also for fans and enthusiasts to take a spin at, at trying uh, to tackle some of these scenarios. Like I, I'll, I'll tell you the way we built it, there's no right answer. There's no, every single choice there's, there's weighted probabilities. Some are more likely to be successful than others, but just like real life, because I'm sure all three of you realize, no, you can have a good process and be unlucky and have a bad result. Over yeah. time, you're more likely to have good results, but sometimes you get fired before you do. And you can have a bad process 
you can hire Hugh Freeze. You'll win a bunch of games probably for a couple of years, even though we know how that story is probably going to end. That happens in college sports too. So we wanted to build that in to make this a little bit more realistic learning experience. And it's, it's boy, it's been fun these, these past couple of weeks here to see people play it. And that light bulb turned on. I'm like, oh, this isn't just a meme. This is, you actually did this. I'm like, that's right. And it, it's, it's been great. I think it, you know, we've all played it. And one thing that I really enjoy is if you play through it a couple of times, you think, well, I found the right answer before. So yeah. I'll just select that again. But it's not always the right answer. It could end up being the very wrong answer because something else happens. Uh, it just plays out differently. So I think that, that speaks to what you were talking about with uh, with process and, and outcome. And I also think that it's cool that it's a bit of a, a labor of love, right? Like you've included real life things that have happened to you, including a story that you teased a little bit on Twitter about your soccer announcing background. This is unfortunately a true story. So when I was a high school sophomore in Bumblefart, rural Ohio, and I had managed to talk at this, my school into letting me be the play-by-play announcer for our women's soccer team. Nobody else was doing it. I thought, hey, this, this is some good media exposure. And I had a huge crush on on one of the girls on the team. I, you know, I, I got pretty good at, at, at doing play-by-play and learning how everything was going. But over the course of the season, late actually it was late in the year, I forgot to turn off the microphone and I casually remarked to my announcer, I wasn't disrespectful or lewd, but I did remark to my colleague in the booth that I thought such and such a person was was beautiful. And of course that went into the microphone and out the entire stadium. And I didn't realize it was a hot mic until this young woman's father (laughs) wandered up into the booth and was like, you know, just wanted to let you know, Matt, that, uh, this is the off button for, for the microphone. I'll catch up with you after the game. So I, I resigned after that. I didn't want to be a distraction. Didn't want to take anything away from the players. And I thought, you know, so most of the scenarios in the game are either completely made up or based at least somewhat on like actual events. But you want to be a little bit silly too. And this is, like, and, and I think anybody that's watched low major broadcasts, you know, ESPN plus broadcast, you know, um, huddle broadcasts of, of, of small college sports. This kind of thing happens because there's a lot of undergrads on the cameras or on the mics and uh, they say things and do things they shouldn't. So it's probably not something that Gene Smith might have to deal with. <laughs> but if you are the AD at Wright State and uh, you're letting your undergrads man, man the cameras at a field hockey game. Yeah, that's uh, this 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 that could happen. Which is something that has uh, one of the, the positive effects. Uh, one of the questions is like, uh, you have to outsource your your media coverage. Do you give the students an opportunity? And so that ends up working out fairly well in the game. Most of the time it does. And, and, and that's a pretty common thing, even for, for Power 5 departments in our, in our experience. I mean, even with the Big Ten, there's usually undergrads involved. But one of the tricky things that we've seen that schools sometimes have to have to figure out is how much are you going to let the undergrads run everything versus are they going to be under the tutelage of maybe a professional or are you going to have a half and half crew or are you going to let you know just have students work behind the work in the control room if you're at a bigger maybe regional state school or somewhere a little bit more urban you you might have a television production major and you're going to have equipment and you're going to have more students doing that if you're maybe a tuition dependent small liberal arts college you might not have access to that. I and mean, then depending on where you're located, you might not have access to the professionals. So I, I've, I've, I've been doing some, some reporting on 
Division two and Division three schools looking to dabble into paywalling broadcasts. And this is a major concern because if you're just outside of Kansas City, you can get a couple of stringers from the local TV station to make sure that nobody does a racism into a microphone or cusses or, or, or does some or you know, something wildly unprofessional. And there are other schools that are like, don't print this exactly like I'm explaining it, but we're kind of working on a wing and a prayer. And, and hoping that nobody embarrasses us here. And if they do, well, there's only 12 people on the broadcast. We just hope it doesn't become a meme. And and that's part of the give and take that you, that if you don't have any money, that, that, that being an AD is like, I think. So I was an undergrad sport man major. I wish this was out when I was in undergrad, honestly, because you know, it's interesting when I, I kind of had this revelation towards the end of my undergrad experience where a lot of the sports management that they kind of push down your throat. I went to a D3 school. So D1 sports wasn't really, I mean, there were a couple of our sports management program students who were actively involved in uh, athletic compliance. But again, D3 doesn't have the same kind of energy that a D1 program with an athletic compliance department and, and the potential to actually work in division one sports would. So, you know, ours was really focused on pro sports and that's really the main, the main ticker. I was in Springfield, Massachusetts. So we had Boston sports, we had Basketball Hall of Fame. We had AHL hockey team there. At that time, we had a G League basketball team. So it was always kind of the focus on pro sports. Never really thought about college sports until I actually went to law school when I was in Syracuse. And that's yeah. when I got more involved with the Division One athletics. So I do wish this was around when I was when I was uh, in undergrad because this is a it's a great idea to kind of open your eyes to like what does a D1 program do, especially coming from a smaller D3 school that really didn't have the same connection to D1 sports that most people, I, I, I'll admit it. I really wasn't that big of a college sports fan going into college. I was, I was pretty much pro sports, went to sport management program to like kind of focus and, and work in, in pro sports. And, you know, something like this would have definitely been so eye opening. And I think this is something that, you know, I hope I, and maybe here's my question, ultimately get into my question. Are these college programs, do you have professors, do you have students kind of approaching you to like get involved or use extra points to teach their students about like D1 programs and like actively like working towards it, especially with like a D2 school, a D3 school where they might not have the same kind of, you know, internships and exposure to D1 programs with more opportunities. Yeah, it's 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 a great question, and and the way you described your experience is something that I hear a lot. I mean, and this is I, to the best of my understanding, that's kind of the case at UMass, right? Which is just up the road from from Springfield, a really well regarded large sports management research focused practice that tends to overwhelmingly be professional sports oriented. And I and I, it's, I whether it's at a D one or an NAIA school. I hear a lot from athletes and sports management students who have no idea what the jobs in college athletics even are. People know what their head coach does. They are aware the athletic director exists. Maybe if you're lucky, you know your ops guy, you know your dobo. And that's about it. And there's this whole infrastructure that's completely foreign. And that is part of why we launched D1 Classroom. So like the video game here, ADS 3000, is was it's. I'm glad that people on Twitter like it. I'm glad my message board weirdos like it. I, I say that with deep love in my heart, but you know, like that's, I, I feel like I'm part of that tribe too, but it, we, we, we justified spending the money on this to help support D1 classroom. And that is a larger product line that we've built to try and support sports management, sports business, sports law programs to specifically for a very narrow college athletics industry curriculum, right? So it's like, we're going to give you extra points. We'll give you ADS 
I write discussion questions for you once a week, you know, that are, that are differentiated depending on, on what kind of student that you're reaching here. And then we have a LinkedIn-like service that's exclusively for college sports and primarily about finding junior level roles in this industry, because trying to fix this problem is something I think about a lot. And, and I, I hope I don't accidentally offend anybody listening to this when I say this, but in my experience as an outsider and I guess a professional in this world, Working in college athletics can be really relationship driven. And if you are somebody that has the good fortune to go to Columbia or Northwestern or maybe a Syracuse undergrad or an Ivy League institution where somebody's dad is the GM of the Mets or or has these kind of connections or where you can do three unpaid internships, you're going to be fine. And if you want to go work in this industry in some capacity, that road will be open to you. But we have hundreds of sports management departments in places like Springfield or in rural Ohio, or in Northern California. And, and a lot of these are tuition-dependent schools that, where people don't have any of these connections. And they don't they don't really learn enough to do anything more than like sell tickets for the Altoona curve. And the school wants to start the program because they want to go increase tuition revenue because the athletes want to be majoring in it, but it's not really aligned with great professional outcomes. And so our hope is, all right, do one classroom is really cheap. It's way cheaper than Sports Business Journal. It's 25 bucks a student. It's cheaper than any textbook that you can assign. It's something that kids at Cutstown and Southern Illinois and Youngstown can conceivably afford. And our hope is then that we can marshal all of the connections to the D1 ticker extended universe to maybe help address that and, and help some students who aren't as socially connected still be, become aware and then potentially be competitive for jobs in this industry, because this industry needs new a new generation of leaders. That's wonderful. I mean, I was looking through the D1 classroom stuff, and that's exactly kind of what I was getting at with my question. Yeah. And and like so, so I went to Springfield College. That's that's the school I went to, and and their program was wonderful. And that's exactly what they taught us from day one. Is that you know, again, it was it. It was more pro pro sports focused. I sure. mean, they, they, and it was networking based. You're going to go to all these networking events. You're going to meet people. You're going to network. You're going to connect, which is a skill, a great skill for anyone, regardless. And, you know, we have a deep alumni basis who are in pro sports. But, you know, you learn very quick. There is only a limited number of teams with a limited number of positions. And most of those start out as sales. And you're in sales for X number of years before you can even make a jump. And, you know, there's yeah. a lot of limitations, you know, as you get into that industry and learn. And when I was looking through your D1 classroom, that was something, and you have a teaching background. So you were, you were an elementary school teacher. So I see this, you know, is this something where you are potentially going to be somebody who's brought in, like if, if say like a program like Springfield College starts to have their own individual class where a, a professor wants to take, because I, I took like all the courses I took were like event management, but with yeah. a pro sports focus, right? There's things like that where somebody might start a, you know, a college athletics, you know, program class, whatever, use the D1 classroom and kind of bring you in, you know, virtually and and have a kind of a connection there. Is that something that you can see moving forward? It's happening. And, I, and I'll be, I'll be honest on the off chance that anyone here listening to this is connected to any of these programs. I would love for you, instructor, university, college conference to use D1 classroom, but I'll talk to your class even if you don't, because I used to be a teacher I'm a teacher's kid. And I'm also, even though I got this gringo ass name, I'm an immigrant's kid. You know, my family's all from Brazil. And I taught in a, in, a, in a first generation American neighborhood. We live in that kind of neighborhood here in Chicago. And I tell everybody, I love this job. I love being able to spend time talking to ADs, talking to athletes, talking to the Learfields and Playflies and NAL collective people of the world. But the things that are most 
intellectually and honestly, like spiritually, you know, energizing for me are working with classes, college classes, particularly those that are serving first generation college students or people that didn't get 24s on their 34s on their ACT and are not spending $60,000. And if the school can't buy the curriculum or they're not teaching a college class, uh, college sports class yet, and they want me to come talk to their SAC group, I'm there, brother. Like, just just give me a call. And whether that's a, a college classroom or or a subset of, of particular college athletes, I'll, I'm happy to do it. And I've done that for schools that use our products. And I've done that for schools that don't. You know, the, the kind of way I think about it is if you live in I, I live in, in Chicago, Chicago, right? And if you're the only guy on the block or the only one of your buddies that has a pickup truck and someone needs to move a couch, you help them because you're the guy with the pickup truck. I am a sports writer. I don't have a pickup truck. I don't have a, a ton of super relevant, important, like handyman skills here, but I have this. So if someone needs a pickup truck, if someone needs, you know, th- these kind of help here, I, I really want to do it. I, I, I feel like I have that uh, societal obligation. Enough handyman skills to put up all those pennants though. Listen, I did paint that wall. There is sticky tack and I bought it at Home Depot, which is a handyman-ish kind of thing. But, you know, I, I'm not the guy to come fix your plumbing, though. You should talk to a professional for that. Yeah, I was kind of in the same boat as Mike a little bit when I was going through the game. I absolutely loved it. I was really Thank drawn you. to the aesthetics of it. I thought it was so simple, but still like so, I guess, nostalgic. And I absolutely loved that part of it. I will not say how long it took me to figure out that the answers were different every single time I uh, clicked or the responses were different every time I clicked an answer it took me a while to figure that out because I was like oh I'll just remember that for next time yeah. like you said that doesn't it's not how it works and clearly that's not how it works in real life either so I thought that was really interesting that it kind of changes just like real life would change I'm also super interested in the d1 classroom especially the industry case studies that you offer. I think that's really cool because I'm a very like hands-on learner. And so that's why I liked the game so much is because I was kind of learning as I go and kind of seeing like, well, what works, what doesn't, or how I can change or whatever needs to be done. I think the case studies are really cool too, because that kind of gives more of the experience of here's like real life scenarios of what you might be dealing with that sometimes you don't really get kind of in school, like learning, reading a textbook, stuff like that. So I'd love a little bit more information on those case studies and kind of where you get them from. I would be happy to. And I'm I'm really glad to hear that. I got to come clean about something real quick about, about the aesthetics of the game. This was partly a design choice because I understood that a lot of instructors are going to be around my age, right? Mid thirties, maybe early forties. And that Oregon Trail eight bit Game Boy kind of audio, it's like that. That that's gonna that's gonna ha- cause some kind of emotional reaction, right? But it's also a way I think to signal to the player that this is the kind of game that came out in 1984. So maybe you shouldn't expect three dimensional graphics, you know, because I know exactly what my development capabilities are, and my hope was, and, and, and you know that kind of those kind of constraints can sometimes be useful creatively, and I think that's true for any kind of project you're doing. We are working very slowly to try to expand the complexity and the feature set. We've kind of joked here, like, all right, if we add a bunch of other graphics, we we add some other variables. And one thing we'd really like to do is have more flexibility with the kind of school that you're that you're working on, right? Maybe we try to make the graphics like Windows 3.1. It's like, well, we'll make this 1992 instead of like a, a modern kind of game. So for the case studies, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. 
And and that's that was an intentional decision here on our part. You know, one of the things that I've 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 really learned, I didn't appreciate this until I this became my full-time job, is that sports management departments from school to school can be really different, right? You can have a very relationship-driven, internship-driven professional sports model curriculum. You can have one that's very research focused and more theoretical or esoteric and that, that's not a criticism that's just a, a different kind of a different kind of world and you have some that are more textbook driven some other things here and so we realized we can't make one kind of cookie cutter uh system and have it be really helpful for a lot of people especially because i only have a bachelor's degree now I, i've been working in, in college sports for a long time and i I'd, I'd like to think that even if i don't necessarily have a different degree on my wall i have a lot of pro professional experience but i realize that that might not that that, that may be a, a barrier for for some institutions and that's been a little surprising about what kind of schools uh, felt that way but for the the case studies i did not write them these the ones we have right now are mostly produced by a, a colleague of mine dr aaron green who is a sports management professor at the University of Louisville. Uh, D1 Ticker's corporate headquarters is in Louisville. We have a long-standing close relationship with that institution. And we have looked here about we, potentially producing other case studies from other credentialed academics who have research experience. They are written in a way, though, that I think would be accessible to a 20-year-old at the median kind of department that we work with. And what I love about these, and what I also love about some of the curriculum suggestions that that Aaron gave us, are that they're differentiated. So it's like if you are uh, are, are teaching a 500 level class at the University of South Carolina, one of our partners, and you're working with people that have had several classes here, well, here's how we can we might suggest you incorporate ADS or incorporate this particular case study. And if you are teaching a freshman class at Cutstown or Lindenwood or Ohio Northern or something, well, here are some other options for you. We haven't offered that uh, in classroom until this will be our first fall semester with using those case studies. I think there's going to be seven of them, and I'm excited to see what students and faculty think about them. So you mentioned the amount of experience that you've had. You also have written a book, which I think is really important right now, What If? And that looks into the life cycles of some old conferences, especially the super metro conferences mentioned in there. Yeah. Uh, what are the mistakes you think that kind of led us to this moment in conference realignment? And do you draw any common threads between the dissolution of old conferences that we think of as being yesteryear and the death of a 108-year-old conference in the Pac-12 now? Yeah, that is a really good question. And, and one of the, I think, reoccurring themes that I take away from reading college sports history as, as maybe an, uh, a rank amateur of, of college athletics history has been that we're really mostly fighting about the same stuff. It's just that the numbers are bigger and, and maybe some of the specific institutions or are, are, are people are a little bit different. And by that, I mean, if you guys pull up like the Carnegie report from, I think it's like 1929 about the ethics in college athletics, it's all the same stuff. It's people complaining, oh my gosh, we're paying too much money to college coaches and college players, and we're taking away from the sanctity of education, and people are missing too much class time to agitate a bag of wind, and everyone's cheating. And it's like, yeah, you could have written that like two years ago. This was just, uh, we just didn't know what the words NIL meant. We're whining about the same stuff, and maybe Williams is cheating more than they're doing now, but it's like, it's the same thing. So, so, uh, throughout a lot of conferences that failed, whether failed before they started or, or kind of dissolved, 
to me, I think one of the major through lines is that as leagues get bigger and lose a sense of institutional identity, the only thing that keeps them together then is money. And if the money is no longer growing at the rate of the disparities of a shared identity, you're more likely to have instability. And, and, and by that, when I, when I talk about shared institutional identity, that might be geography. It might be institutional type. You know, you look at the West Coast Conference for decades and decades and decades. Those are all, they're all Christian, small enrollment, West Coast private schools. And they know that when they get together for a president's meeting and you've got five priests in there, those meetings are a little bit easier than if you bring in uh, a couple of secular research level institutions. So when you look at, I think this was a problem with the airplane conference that almost happened where you're going to have Notre Dame and the military academies and Penn State, and then a couple of like fancy pants Southern private schools, and you couldn't get them all to go in the same direction. We, we, we saw this with the Metro Conference. One of the big reasons that fell apart, according to Raycom, who I interviewed for the book, it wasn't just about money. It was about academics. It was about Syracuse and Miami and some of these private schools. I'm like, I don't know if we want to say we're peers of Southern Miss or we don't maybe we don't want to mess with the ECU. Maybe maybe by, by moving in this other direction, not only are our checks a little bit bigger, but we get to, you know, we get to rub shoulders with some schools that we think are more like us instead of these other places. And that would be my concern, honestly, as we head into this new super conference era. When I look at what the Big 12 is right now, and I hear Brett Yormark or hear some of the schools here talk about their shared identity, I got to laugh. Like your shared identity is you guys want to keep playing big time college sports and you want to make 31 million a year. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But like, let's not pretend that BYU and West Virginia have anything in common. Let's not pretend that UCF and Arizona State, you know, have anything in common other than sunshine. Like it's, it's a national league with you know, many schools that have no competitive, no institutional, no geographic history with each other. And I think that will work in the short term. But eventually there will be disagreements. They might be political, they might be competitive, they might be financial. And without that history to kind of pave over some of those disputes, it gets really hard to keep everybody together. And I think that's that's one of the lessons I've taken from studying this over the last 100 years. So in that sense, do you think SMU is a, a fit in the ACC? Like they, they they seem to be kind of grasping at straws maybe because they they didn't make any moves for a long time. And it's basically just the grant of rights, the money, again, the pain that the of how much it would cost to leave that is essentially holding this conference together. Yeah, I, I think the ACC is a good example, right? They they deviated from their core identity over the last de couple of decades in an attempt to consolidate broadcast tele television revenue or consolidate football success. And now it's become a major issue because I, I know there are multiple schools in the ACC that are acad selective academic institutions that like I, legitimately, I know it's it's easy to be cynical about this, but legitimately really care about broad-based athletic opportunities. Virginia cares very deeply about being good at cross country and being good at baseball and, 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 and being good at swimming and being able to offer all of these experiences. North Carolina cares about that. Georgia Tech cares about that. Clemson does not. And that doesn't make Clemson unrighteous it doesn't make them bad people. It means their constituents and their history care about different things. Florida State cares about different things. Miami, I mean, who the hell knows what Miami really cares about at this point? I don't know if they've made up their mind if they want to be a football school or not. But then if you have this kind of tension, and also you're all 2,000 miles away from each other from tip to tip, it makes figuring out, do we want SMU? Do we want Cal? Do we want Stanford? 
really, really challenging. And in a way that that might not be the case for, for some other conferences. I can't make a reported guess about where SMU will end up. I look at the ACC as there, there's plenty of places that have a lot in common with SMU. If I wanted to be kind of mean about it, I, could, I might say they have things in common with SMU. But other, I mean, like, who can just say like, hey, the student body of Duke and SMU have some similarities in, in a couple of different ways, right? But in many ways, athletically or culturally, there's massive differences, We'll see. We'll end up seeing what happens there. They would have uh, would have been easier for them had they at that that school made different decisions over the last fifteen years. So, where do you think, like a, a school like Notre Dame, which was kind of mocked for its independence, but now finds itself in a pretty enviable position of not being forced to go one way or another, not being part of a, a crumbling conference? Where do you think that they? end up going? Do you think that they stick it out as independents? Do you think that they reach some sort of agreement with the Stanfords and Cal's that have been left behind? I would be kind of surprised if if they decide to do something with the Stanford and Cal's of the world, like, or, you know, resurrect the airplane conference from the 60s. Because if you look at the roster of those newspaper reports, it's pretty similar to SMU, Army, Navy, Air Force, Notre Dame, like that. I mean, that, that's most of the schools. Notre Dame is, is, is such a unique case in that football independence, as it's been explained to me from their senior athletic officials, legitimately is part of the university's core identity. Because if you look at the Notre Dame institution origin story, that this was this semi-backwater provincial parochial academy that still had a high school attached to it at the turn of the century and was growing from football and wanted to be associated with growing Midwestern public institutions. And because of what's, I mean, let's be honest, racism and anti-Papist discrimination, which feels you know ridiculously old-timey, but this is what Michigan was about, you know, forced Notre Dame to barnstorm. And by and by virtue of that, they created a an, an identity for the school that resonated with uh, American and particularly immigrant European Catholics throughout the United States. And that identity was part of what made it the most prominent or one of the most prominent Catholic institutions of higher learning in, in the country. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, would Notre Dame, maybe to any of us, cease being Notre Dame if they were in the Big Ten or the ACC? I don't think so. But I'm not a Catholic and I'm not a Notre Dame fan. And there are trustees and there are people that look at that in football independence as part of Notre Dame, the institution's independence. We don't need the AAU. We don't need to be a tier one uh, research university. We can chart our own path because we're not beholden to those same things. And that also means Notre Dame can, can take $12 million less a year than they might make in a major conference. Just say, we'll make it up somewhere else. We used to make it up through radio. We used to make it up through, through Hollywood. We used to make it up through the Notre Dame mystique. And in some respects, I, I think I think they can still do that. The one thing that would change, this is what Jack Swarbrick said several times before he retired, and I would imagine that a new administration will say the same, is if there's no longer a path to the college football playoff, if there's no longer a path to reasonably competing for a football national championship as an independent, then they'll join a conference. And my understanding now is they actually are obligated by contract to join the ACC, absent some enormous settlement if they do join a conference as, as long as that GOR continues. But I don't anticipate that happening in the near future. I think that for other schools, that's a very different calculus. Like Florida State would not do this. But Notre Dame, because it's Notre Dame, is, is comfortable 
trading top line revenue for being aligned with its core values and brand. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think Florida State did have that kind of background for a while, right? Where they would yeah. take on all challengers and and then they joined the ACC because I don't think that they necessarily had the mystique, the brand that went along with with Notre Dame. But I, I do find those to be very interesting parallel situations because they're currently trying to get out of the ACC and they've spoken very publicly about it. And to the point where they're talking about spinning off their possible media rights payments and bringing in private equity money, maybe even investment from from Saudi parties. Do you think that that's something that we're going to see before the grant of rights expires in 2036? It's possible. I'm going to be honest, friends, like this deeply concerns me, this development here. And it's not super uncommon in high level European soccer my understanding is on some levels, a couple of South American entities have kicked the tires on it. There's been talking about a, a private equity finance Brazilian domestic super league for a couple of years. It's normally a good way for gringos to lose a bunch of money, but maybe the Brazilians will figure it out this time. But, and it's the PAC 12 looked at doing this under Larry Scott and, and, and it didn't work. And one of the reasons it didn't work, as I understand it, is because the PAC 12 was telling potential investors, you can give us all this money. And you'll have an equity stake in what we're calling NUCO, like the spinoff firm. But we are guaranteed majority voting rights. Like you, the, the private equity or the venture capital firm will not have control. You will just be giving us money. And that's not typically the way that these kind of investments work. If someone's going to hand you $500 million and is asking for, you know, 20, 30% gains, they want to have some flexibility over who's on the board. And they want to be able to make some of these decisions and, and have some physical equity in a way that you really can't for college sports because it's not like BlackRock can confiscate Florida State. It's a state asset. And this is there's two things about this 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 deal which I think could happen that I think are deeply worrying. And it would be I think should be if you're if you're a fan of any other kind of institution. Part of that is because it's going to be very difficult to prevent whether that's Morgan Stanley or the, any other bank or a third firm from sell, from piecemealing or selling off some of that debt. I don't think it's necessarily going to be the Saudis, but it could very well be an entity that has some conflicts of interest or that Florida State might not want involved, like an MMR company or I don't know, even like a pension fund that maybe isn't aligned with their values or something. That could be an issue. And then if you're a fan, if Florida State could pull this off, they can raise $500 million, $600 million, buy out of this thing. What on earth is keeping anybody involved in any league anywhere? What is to stop then a different PE firm from then starting the, the football champions league and buying off Ohio State, Michigan, Alabama, and peeling them into like this, this 32 team entity, maybe one that that's directly related to revenue sharing. Right now we would look at grants of rights and tradition and nobody has that kind of capital liquid to pry them away. But if Florida State can pull it off, I think the door's open. And, and we've already seen this with Barcelona. We've seen this for other places. The kind of people that have that kind of money and what they're looking for and the changes that they would that they would advocate to, 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 to get that kind of investment, I would be deeply, deeply worried about. Yeah, but I think Florida State's serious about it. Um, there's a lot of public schools, either because their state government wouldn't allow them to do this or they have a different risk calculus, I don't think would entertain this. But as my understanding is that Florida State also has a very expansive speculative real estate development happening right now around the stadium. And they're concerned if they're not competitive, 
that they'll lose a lot of money and maybe some politically connected boosters or donors would also lose some money there. So if they have to roll the dice, letting Sixth Street potentially shut down their soccer team if things don't go well, they feel like they have to do that. I don't like it, but that they think they have to do that. I kind of want to jump back a little bit to something that we were talking about with the conference realignments, kind of what you mentioned, like these students maybe potentially having to travel across the country from like, I don't know, USC to go play, I don't know, like Michigan or something like that. If they, if they're in the big 10, whatever, um, how do you think that's going to affect like the non-football sports, like wrestling, softball, like women's sports, because, you know, they're, a lot of this conference realignment is for these TV deals that really has to do with kind of the bigger sports, football, basketball, and they always seem to get some sort of TV time, but some of the smaller sports don't. So the schools that, you know, used to be able to travel to, to watch your team play. Now you don't get to go like travel, or it's a lot harder to travel across the country to watch these, like, I guess it's not necessarily smaller sports, but like the, not as popular televised sports. Sure. I'm kind of interested what you think about how that's going to affect the students in that situation and also kind of the school's emphasis on those sports. It's a really good and important question. And it's it's actually one that I've reached out to some graduate students at the University of Washington to hopefully potentially write their perspectives for extra points. And I told them I'd pay them to do it. And, and I, I, for, I think it's important folks like us to realize that athletes' experiences and opinions are not monolithic. If a Washington or Oregon athlete said, I'm an Olympic sport athlete at these at these schools, I am so excited to never go to Pullman ever again. I hope Oregon State just eats crap and dies. Sign me up for Purdue, baby. I'm thrilled. You know what? Great. Let's print it. And, and that's a valid experience, right? I, if somebody else says, hey, I'm really concerned about what this is going to mean for my missed class time or rivalries, I, I think I think that's valid and important too. One of the things that I think regular fans don't fully appreciate so much is that the, how disruptive travel time is, is not just a function of raw miles as the crow flies. You don't just pop into Google, you know, point A to point B here, right? Particularly for athletes on the West Coast. And I think anybody here that does a lot of coastal travel knows this is true. Time zones are a, a, a very significant factor. If you are going three hours in one direction, three time zones away in the other direction, it messes up your body clock. And even for, you know, for a washed up mid thirties guy like me, if I go to Vegas or Salt Lake or, or Los Angeles, I'm wiped for that first day. Olympic athletes and even basketball players don't get three or four days to acclimate like they might in the NBA or the NFL. Like you, you travel on, on tighter timelines, time and over the course of a season, that literally messes up your legs. I've shared peer-reviewed research about this, interviewing athletes from like the Alaska hockey teams or from some of the some Western teams that have to have had to do enormous amounts of travel at Hawaii. It's a, it's a huge deal. And I think we can't ignore that that's going to be a factor for athletes on the West Coast that are going to be playing the majority of their games in the Midwest or East. There's also the fact that most of those athletes are not chartering. There may be some ways to charter those flights and share them between schools, to be creative with conference schedules to reduce some of that travel. That's what the Big Ten athletic directors say in print every time. My response is, that sounds great. Show me the schedule. Because right? right now, all we're talking about is hypotheticals. But if you're not chartering and you're flying from the west to the east, you're probably going to get a layover in O'Hare. 
And I live outside of O'Hare. I fly out of O'Hare all the time. I'm guessing you three probably do sometimes as well. The idea of depending on the reliability of that airport, especially as the weather gets colder, is not a serious, that's to ignore reality, especially as air travel nationally becomes less reliable. I think the same system would be true if you were relying on Atlanta or Charlotte or any or Denver or any major airline hub. Delays are going to happen. And if we are sticking two teams from two different schools on one commercial flight and you're, you're trying to turn this around very quickly, we're going to see games postponed because flights simply aren't going to make it. And I, I, I think I think that's a that's a big concern. I mean, the, the cynical answer is that a bunch of ADs and presidents have looked at that and have decided this is going to make the actual lived experience of, my, of the majority of my athletes worse. A lot of my fans are not going to like it. It means that the, the broadcast windows are going to be optimized for areas where our fans don't live. And that means that some people on the East Coast are going to have to stay up till 1030 at night to watch the tip off of a basketball game, which I'm not doing. I'm sleeping through whatever Big Ten games tips off of Washington. I will hear about that in the morning. And the administrators look at that and say, oh, this is terrible. But we're going to do it anyway. Because you either feel like we don't have a choice, we're not politically empowered to do something different, or because I want to grab that extra $7 million. I think that sucks. And I think it especially sucks. I saw a region at Michigan and I've seen other administrators try to mealy mouth this or, you know, criticize it. Like, look, man, if you if you push the button, then stick your chest out and defend that decision. If not, nobody put a gun to your head and said that you had to take Oregon. Charlie Baker is not forcing you to do this. So either if you're going to make the unpopular decision, own it or else make a brave decision. And if you're not willing to do that, in my humble opinion, athletics administration is not for you. Seems like a uh, a wrong answer for eighty three thousand. <laughs> I was going through a lot of Twitter threads about a lot of college athletes. Notorious on Twitter that went pretty uh, pretty viral was some Oregon <laughs> softball players talking about you know the toll that it's going to take, and then you know a lot of articles popping up, and then even Missouri football coach Eli Drinkwitz talking about mental health, and and you know this is a football decision. This isn't a student athlete decision. These are football decisions that are going to make the the schools more money because of the TV deals, but they're not thinking about all the other sports. And then again, that coupled with all the athletes who were saying, you know, I chose to go to the Pac-12 to play near my family. My family can watch me. We play relatively local. Now I have to go to Rutgers, you know, on a dime because we are in the, in the Big Ten now. So it's an interesting dynamic of the quick decision, right? Like, like Matt, like you just said, like pushing a button and like, you know, defend your position. It's, it's money. It's a, it's a money position. It is. And I have some sympathy if you're an administrator of Washington, you know, for the Pac-12 and that that league is deteriorating and you you feel like you literally don't have a choice. Uh, fine. I don't want to send my slings and arrows to any of the Pac-12 schools that, that went to the Big Ten. My, my frustrations with the Big Ten teams that took them. And if it is about money, then I think fine. Then get in front of a microphone and then explain why the trade-off you know, for X, Y, and Z is worth that money or how that money is actually going to go directly to athlete experiences. And it, it's a very strange trend, I think I've noticed. And I really hope that I haven't inadvertently played a part in it. But I've seen a world where some college sports fans are just rooting for checkbooks and rooting for the, the conference distribution number to go up and you, as if that gives the fan base power or bragging rights. And here's the, the truth of it, friends, is that if the SEC makes 65 or $71 million a year, nobody's sending a Kentucky fan to dividend. 
the money isn't directly going to the athletes at this point. It's being it's being financed by third parties or, or money laundered through charities or anything. That if there's extra money, it's going to get spent on facilities. It's going to get spent on NIL consultants and it's going to get spent on salaries. Maybe that's the right decision. Maybe it's not, but you don't have to cheerlead it. Well, like, gosh, I hope they would spend it on a private jet for these athletes. Sure. Well, uh, and, and Florida State, I guess, is looking at buying a couple of airplanes. But like this doesn't happen very, very often either, right? And And I don't want to make it sound like I'm some kind of like socialist radical about any of this. I really try to be a, a pragmatist about it. And getting more money and finding ways to expand revenue can be can be great. And in many ways you can do that. Don't hurt athletes and speak to the entrepreneurship and, and creativity of students and employees and, and, and administrators. And that's great. It's trying to maximize revenue at end of its own sake, rather than what we do with, the, with that money, the tool for that money, I think is concerning. And we're starting to see a world here where that's leading to net negative outcomes for athletes. It is for fans. And, and quite frankly, even for many people that work in this industry, because college sports, as I'm sure the three of you know, is really the glue to holding this whole thing together is a lot of people working a gajillion hours for 48 grand and are not exactly enjoying the financial boom of, of this industry. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left. want to get a couple more questions in if we can. I wish we had many hours together and you know hopefully we will in the future. I wanted to ask you, I, I think all three of us, my colleague and myself, would think of ourselves as being advocates for student athletes for their position and wanting them to get more. Do you think that people who are in our position or are on our side of the V have to be careful in what we're advocating for? Do you think that our advocating for student athletes to get more also inadvertently pushes the leadership of these schools and conferences and networks and stuff to also be what we would think of as more greedy? Boy, that's a really good question. And to be honest, friends, I, I think about this a lot. Uh, one of the others, I mean, I, I think similarly, when I think about individuals who I think for the for the right reasons are trying to advocate for, for college athletes. One of the challenges that, that can come from that is knowing that college athletes, again, are not a monolith and have can have very different needs and desires and trying to kind of organize them as some kind of collective voice can be really hard. One of the, I think, frustrations that I have a little bit with maybe some other more visible athlete advocates is that some of them define athletes as purely top 400 football recruits and top 100 men's basketball recruits and the kind of people that might command what is euphemistically referred to as roster value and what I might more directly call bagman value, you know, like being paid to go to go commit to a program and, and view their athlete activism purely within that lens. And unquestionably, many of those athletes are being financially and, and exploited and exploited in many, in many other ways. But that is a tiny, tiny percentage of all college athletes. One of the concerns that I have, and this is as this is coming from somebody that's organized unions before in my life, is that moving towards a model where we have unions in college athletics without the difficult work of really organizing that labor beforehand could create a system where there is a, a union that's essentially created by management, so, kind of like a SAC group is today, that can't be an effective voice for athletes. And then what they end up just getting destroyed in their first two contracts, which I understand kind of happened with a lot of the early professional sports unions. And then you might look at it and think over a 50-year window, 
that might be a net benefit for athletes as, as, as we find a college football Kurt Flood and, and, and we, we, we kind of build towards that way. But in the immediate term, someone's real life, they might lose their scholarship. They might lose healthcare. They might have benefits clawed back to what they are here before. And that may be the right decision. It might not be the right decision. For me, I think like that has to be one that's driven by athletes. And if I am, say, a tenured law professor or a tenured economist who doesn't have skin in the game and is really adamantly pushing for strikes or agitating for labor uh, disruption or or cheerleading the dissolution of, of, of college athletics as we know it, to me, that's frustrating, even if your heart's in the right place. Because it's like, my man, you make $240,000 a year. And nothing, if, if you're wrong or if you're right, nothing bad happens to you. But there are some people here where this is real life and there are enormous stakes and we should not be frivolous about what that means for real people here. We should be very respectful. And I think we should, as advocates, lean heavily on what they want rather than what we think they should want based on our academic and professional experiences. It's a complicated question. I I, I grapple with this a lot, too. You hit some hot points right there. So I'm going to follow up with some of those. And and I think it's a a good segue into some federal legislation here. You talked about unionization. You talked about benefits, medical benefits, health benefits. And you talked about, you know, essentially like employee status almost of these student athletes. We talked about this and I, you know, I've seen some of your articles too pop up about, you know, the influx of all the federal NIL bills and what's going to be covered and the importance of, you know, having some of these clauses put in there, I, I thought there was kind of a sneaky way where they put in these medical benefits in, in one of the bills, which essentially is is going down the pathway of determining that an athlete would be an employee status as they start getting employee benefits. Is that something that you see as possible? I know there's a lot of different attacks. I'll say attacks on the NCAA model right now as it relates to you know NLRB and and unionization, employee status, as well as athlete rights and NIL rights. Do you see a world where that that could actually happen, where a union can be possible, a student athlete is going to be considered an employee with employee benefits? Yeah, I'll try to take a whack at this because boy, this could be a whole hour, right? Just kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely digging into here. I would respectfully defer to many of you three about the, the the finer points of labor law. I understand that many attorneys and people on Twitter like to cosplay like they went to law school and I did not. And so <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend even though I, I I feel like I've gotten at least some CLE credit <laughs> from reading uh, as much about antitrust as, uh, as I have these past couple of months. I do think it is probable, maybe highly probable in the next two or three years that some court whether it's the administrative courts of the NLRB or Johnson v. NCAA or the after effects of House v. NCAA, somebody's going to say some group of college athletes are employees. I don't know whether some means everybody, whether it means football and men's basketball players within Division One. Maybe it's if it's a subset of the Power Five. I don't know, right? And, and I know a lot of that has more to do with control than it does with revenue generated. But I fully expect college sports to move to that system in the next two or three years which presumably would allow for a union. And this is this is my big question. And I, I want to, I come to this question, not as somebody who is antagonist, is ideologically or antagonistic to athlete unionization. I look at this more just pragmatically about power. One of my big concerns about any kind of college athlete union is going to be the size and scope of the bargaining unit and what defines to be, what, to be in a union. Based on my experiences being, you know, organizing a union at Vox and covering unions and being around unions is that solidarity within that group is extremely important 
to pushing for any kind of change. And that solidarity can't come from professional labor organizers. It can't come from the outside. It won't come from Andy Staples and it won't come from me and it won't come from anybody at On3 or any economist or antitrust uh, agitator. It's going to come from, from athletes. And what we've already seen with attempts at collective athlete action before COVID, around NIL, even before then, is that it's extremely hard to build solidarity the larger the group is. And I think that's especially, it will get more challenging moving forward because most of these guys don't come from union homes. Where labor is going in this country is it's increasingly looking more like me than it is, you know, or, or, or people that work in the government ra rather than in, in manufacturing or, or in services or, or anywhere else. And I think my, my worry would be the law says athletes can have a union. And the, the bargaining unit creates a, a union that would be the youngest and most transient, not just in the United States, but really globally. Like there aren't really a lot of labor unions where people age out at 23 are only going to be in there for four years, might only be in leadership for nine months. So I would look at that and think if there's not real organizing power beforehand from within or a very narrow unit, that union could just, that, that union could just get steamrolled. And that may be legally correct. But I think that would probably be a, a worse experience for more athletes. Maybe there's a way to do it. And I just don't know about it yet. But I, I, I look at that with concern. Does yeah, that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the question that we're going to continue to explore because there, there's so much that goes into it. And you've been very, very generous with your time, Matt. We really appreciate it. For anyone that's listening, you want to find Matt's work. It's definitely worth the subscription, extrapointsmb.com. And also we've got uh, D1 Classroom, the materials there, very worthwhile. Uh, and definitely check out Athletic Director Simulator 3000. And Matt is also an excellent follow on Twitter. It's at Matt Brown EP. Matt, thanks so much for joining us tonight. You bet. So this was fun. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for... Uh... For all the kind words and support, I, I, it really means a lot because it is not easy to make a living writing about this kind of stuff instead of chasing down who Michigan's quarterback is going to be. And I'm only able to do it because of people like you guys and, and everyone else that's willing to, to say we're going to support niche, weird, specific you know, college sports content. I, I think it's a major blessing and I'm really appreciative of, of your help and, and your generosity here with me. Absolutely. And we know it's not going to slow down anytime soon. So can't wait to have you back on again soon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. You bet. Thanks again to Matt Brown from Extra Points for joining us tonight. Again, you can find him on Twitter at Matt Brown EP and his website, Extra Points MB, is very worthwhile. As always, our podcast sponsored by Themis. Themis, best bar review company in the galaxy. And here is a message from our host, Spotify. I think that that does it for us, right, Mike, Holly? Yeah, I really appreciate listening to Matt. He's a wealth of knowledge. And I just think that the D1 classroom is so beneficial. I, I think there's a lot of, I think the the AD3000 is really cool. And I thought the game was really awesome. And that's like very very niche, right? Like it's, it's like so unique, but the D1 classroom, I think can be very beneficial for, you know, me as a sports management, you know, major, like going into, into working in sports and developing that knowledge base. I think that's going to be really beneficial for students moving forward. Yeah, I agree. One of the main things we like to do at Condor Detrimental is kind of help people get jobs in sports law. And this is one of those things that we kind of align with Matt and what he's doing with extra points in the D1 classroom. So it's awesome getting to see 
other people want to put other people in jobs. Thanks again to my co-hosts, Holly Summers and Mike Lawson. For myself, Taryn Sharma, the Dans, Dan Lust and Dan Wallach, and everyone at the Conduct Detrimental Family. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.